Chapter Twenty Two of the Silver Bullet by Fergus Hume. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A message from the dead. The old Italian woman looked very ill. Her form was shrunken, her face thin and white, her eyes unnaturally large. Evidently, the misty climate of the Midlands chilled her to the bone. She had developed a hacking cough and shook with the ague when the east wind tormented Beominster. Herrick was shocked at the change which had taken place in her appearance during these few short weeks. Apparently Petronella was not long for this world. But the near approach of death did not appall her. She was terribly lonely now that her mistress was gone. Signor Doctore, she croaked, when Herrick made his appearance, you have come to see me? That is good. But you will not cure me. No, I am dead, Signor. Dio mio, what does it matter? She ended with a characteristic shrug, punctuated with a cough. Indeed, you do look ill, Petronella, said Dr. Jim sympathetically. I must ask the squire to send over someone to look after you. No, replied the old woman obstinately. I am well here, and it will not be long, Signor. Soon I shall be in my beautiful Italy. At least come over to the Pines, Petronella. You will be better attended to there, and it is warmer. But Petronella crossed herself with pious horror. Go to that devil Casa, Signor, not me. He had the evil eye, that man who died. See, si, Signor, I went one day with Madrona, and he swore at me. I had an accident the next day. Cospetto, agitura, that Signor. But come in, come in, Signor Doctore. This is the best room she led Herrick into what once had been the drawing-room. Ah, Bishori di Chianti, Signor? Signor Stephen sent me some Chianti. No, thank you, Petronella, replied Herrick, sitting down on a dusty seat. I want to have a chat with you. We will talk in your own language, if you like. Ah, no, Signor, I speak the English well, thanks be to the saints. My padrona was fond of speaking the English, so we will talk, Signor Doctore. Herrick acquiesced with a shrug. He was quite prepared to talk any language she chose, provided he got what he wanted. He was not very certain how to go about the matter. Petronella was a shy bird and inclined to be obstinate. He felt his way in a roundabout fashion so as to take her by surprise. You'll be glad to get back to Italy, Petronella? See, si, see, si, to the little town by the Adriatic. There I was born, Signor, and there I will die. If I die not here, ah, Dio. You are in pain, I fear. Petronella shrugged her lean shoulders. I'm always in pain, she said. My legs and body all pain. But the padrona left me something to take. Thanks be to her. Povera, signora, and the pain goes. Not chloral, I hope. Si, senor, a little bottle of chloral. I take not much, only when I am bad, so bad. Then the pain goes. Be careful what you do, Petronella. Remember, your mistress died from taking too much. I shall be careful, muttered the old woman. Ah, Dio mio, 
what does it matter if I die, all alone in this big house, and Signor Stefano away? You saw him the other day, he told me, said Dr. Jim carefully, approaching his business. He told me you had some message for me. Petronella nodded and screwed up her thin lips. Only when he is in danger, Signor, not now, he is too well. What do you mean, Petronella? asked Herrick, puzzled by her nods. Signor Doctore, said Petronella, standing very straight, my padrona, before she died, called to me. She gave me a large letter and told me to give it to the Signor Doctore when Signor Stefano was in danger. Oh? Herrick's eyes flashed. He had always wondered how it was that Mrs. Marsh had died without making any sign. After the conversation she had had with him, he quite expected that she would have left him a farewell message. It appeared that she had done so, but that the letter had been withheld by Petronella according to instructions. When did she write this, Petronella? You said nothing about it at the time. No, I did what I was told to do, Signor. Echo, Signor Dettori. It was in this way. After my padrona got the letter from the postman in the middle of the day, she was very angry and afraid. Afraid? Why was she afraid? She lo sa, shrugged Petronella. She said nothing to me, but she told me to bring pen and ink and paper. All the afternoon she was writing. Ah, uh, how she did write. Then she put all the writing into an envelope, Signor, and wrote our name on it. She told me to give it to the Signor Doctore when Signor Stefano was in danger. She said that Signor Doctore was a good man. I give it to you, Signor, but not now. No, and Petronella, closing her mouth firmly, shook her aged head. I think you had better give it to me this very minute, Petronella, said Herrick, rising, for Signor Stefano is in very great danger indeed. As how? Signor Doctore, he may be accused of murdering his uncle, Colonel Carr. Ah, Dio mio, crowed the old woman. Did I not say that the dead man had the evil eye? Did I not tell the Signora that evil would come to the young Signor from his death? She caught Herrick's arm and fixed her glittering eyes on his face. You swear to me that this is true what you say? Signor Stefano is in danger, eh? Eh? I swear he is, Petronella, replied Herrick earnestly, and this packet you talk of may save him. Ah, see, si. well do I know, Signor Doctore, that is so. My padrona said that it told how the danger could be set aside. You understand? In this letter, Signor, there is a strange story. Do you know what it is, Petronella? No, Signor Doctore, Padrona did not tell me, but she said it was a strange story, and to be read when my young Signor was in danger. I will go and bring it. La, la, la. It is danger. Dio mio, that wicked Signor who is dead. Burbante, ladroni, the evil eye, the evil eye. Coughing as she went, the old woman hobbled out of the room. Dr. Jim sat still wondering if he was about to learn the truth at last. If Pentland Corn was to be believed, Mrs. Marsh 
had been at the Pines about the hour when the crime had been committed. Herrick did not now believe that she had killed the man herself as she had been possessed of the modern revolver with which the three shots had been fired. It was impossible to imagine that she had fired one shot with an old-fashioned weapon and had then reverted to the use of the new revolver. No, the first shot, the death shot, had been fired by someone else, possibly by Frisco. Mrs. Marsh had met the assassin in the house, but for reasons of her own had not divulged the name. Also judging from her conversation, she had known a great deal about Carr and Frisco, especially about the latter. Seeing that she had warned Jim that Frisco might attempt to kill Stephen. As a matter of fact, although the man had not struck the blow himself, he had guided the hand of Santiago to strike it. Herrick wondered if Mrs. Marsh would say anything about the Mexican. At all events, I shall know the truth at last, he said. After reading this letter, the mystery will be one no longer. But why did Mrs. Marsh delay such important information all this time? This was a question he could not answer. He was still puzzling over it when Petronella entered the room, carrying a large blue envelope sealed with the car crest. This she handed to Herrick with much ceremony. "'There is my trust, senor,' she croaked. "'Bear witness by all the saints that I gave it only when the young senor was in danger.' "'That is all right, Petronella. I shall read it here. Will you stay?' No, Senor Doctore, I do not want to hear the secrets of my padrona. I go to make myself a meal, Senor. You stay here and read. A glass of wine, Senor Doctore? Ah, por l'amor de Dio, un bichera de Chiante. Herrick politely refused the attention, and Petronella went grumbling out of the room. She was a hospitable old soul and liked the doctor. When he was alone in that dismal, deserted apartment, he drew up his chair close to the window and opened the envelope. Five or six sheets of closely written paper fell out, also a typewritten letter. After a glance at this last, Dr. Jim smoothed out the paper and began to read. The story, as it might be called, commenced abruptly. This impetuosity was extremely characteristic of Mrs. Marsh. After a glance round the room, Dr. Jim settled to read. The manuscript was as follows. I am a wicked woman and an evil woman. There, you see, Mr. Herrick, I place my character before you in the first line. I know you are no fool, or I should not make such a confession. But when you read these pages, I shall be in my grave. So what you say or think does not matter. If these pages are made public, there will be blame enough from other people. To save my boy, they must be made public. I can foresee that he will be accused of the murder of that beast Carr. I swear that he is innocent. He knows nothing. From the grave, I send out my voice to defend him. And you are a clever man, Herrick. The defense of my poor boy I confide to you. If you do not do your best, I swear to haunt you, if it be possible for the dead to return. But after all, you are too sensible 
to be frightened by this talk. Let me get to the facts of the case. Those will interest you more than the ravings of a dying woman. So I begin. I have said that Colonel Carr was a beast. I repeat it. He was a cruel tiger. Rolling in wealth, he refused to give me any money, yet he knew that I was accustomed to luxury and that Stephen was his nephew. No wonder I hated the man. Again and again I implored him, almost on my knees, to allow me sufficient to live on. He always refused with his sneering laugh. Often I wonder that I did not kill him. Yet he had one good point. He had loved his sister, and out of love for her memory, he made Stephen his heir. He also caused him to be educated, but when that was done, he refused to allow him an income to live like a gentleman. I hated Carr for that, even if he had not allowed me money, still his own sister's child should not have felt the pinch of poverty. I love Stephen. He is a very kind, good boy, and has put up with my vile temper all these years. Now that he is rich, I hope he will marry Ida, if she does not prefer you, and I do not think that is likely, and live the happy life of a country gentleman. My blessings on them both. To come to the point which I know you want to reach. On the night of Carr's murder, I was at the rectory. It came to my ears through some words dropped by Frisco when he was intoxicated that Carr intended to disinherit my son. Whom he intended to favor, I do not know, nor do I care. But I could not stand meekly by and see the lad robbed of what was righteously his own. I went into Saxon that afternoon to see Carr and to remonstrate against his committing the monstrous injustice he had contemplated. He saw me with the greatest coolness and behaved quite in accordance with his character. In vain did I point out that Stephen was the sole living representative of his blood and was entitled by law to the property. Carr said that he had another relative living, a cousin descended from an uncle of his, who had been turned out of doors by his grandfather. This uncle had married in America and had died, leaving a daughter who married a Yankee. It was the son of this daughter to whom Carr referred as his cousin. Furthermore, he declared that his cousin had a son about the age of my Stephen. I asked him if he intended to leave the property to this cousin and his brat. But this he denied. He said that he had made the money himself and would leave it to whomsoever he pleased. In a word, he defied me. I was helpless. I could do nothing. And that afternoon, I left the Pines mad with rage. After a threat to kill Carr. Needless to say, he laughed at my threat. Why I did not kill him then, you will ask? Because I wanted to give the man one last chance. I warned him that I would shoot him if he persisted in his injustice. I said that I would return that evening for my answer. Then I went to the rectory and had dinner with Pentland Corn. Here, my dear Herrick, I may state that I had brought a pistol with me, or rather a revolver. It belonged to Stephen, who at one time had a craze for shooting. The revolver was put away in its case, which was on the mantelpiece of his study. I remembered 
that it was there, and on looking I found that all six chambers were loaded. I knew that Stephen never troubled about the weapon, so I took it with me to the Pines. But on that afternoon I did not use it. Carr, I said to myself, should have his chance. Stephen was to come to the rectory for me about nine. Some time before that I told Corn that I would go to the Carr Arms to meet Stephen. But I intended to go up to the Pines. Corn never suspected my intention. I quickly went up to the Pines shortly before nine. I found no one in the lower part of the house. Frisco, I suppose, was sleeping off his drunken fit. As I heard from Napper that he had been drinking in the afternoon and had uttered threats against his master, I knew that if anywhere, Carr would be in the tower. The table was laid out for dinner, but he was not in the dining room. I went upstairs and found him in the tower chamber. He was in evening dress, lying dead with his face downward. I turned him over and saw that he had been shot through the heart. At once, I guessed that Frisco had carried out his threat and had murdered the colonel. But I thought Carr might have altered his will before dying. I was quite mad with rage, thinking he had cheated me. Then I did what you will consider a terrible and barbarous thing. I fired three shots into his dead body. I suppose it was wicked of me, seeing that the man was dead. But I am Italian, as you know, and I was mad with fury at the thought of how this he had treated me. The only revenge I could take was to have my share in his death, so I fired three times. It did me good, and I came away much calmer. I see you raise your eyebrows in horror, my virtuous Herrick. Ah, bah! You are English and cold-blooded as a frog. I am Italian, and I did what I did. I have no other excuse to make. I was only a few minutes in the tower chamber. Then I came down to get away, lest I should be accused of the crime. At the door below I met Frisco. He had his hat and coat on, and a small bundle in his hand. I said, you have killed him. He lies dead upstairs. Frisco denied that he was guilty and referred to my three shots. I explained and told him that he could call up the whole countryside to hear what I had done. At the same time, I warned him that as I had found the colonel dead, I would accuse him of the murder. Frisco repeated that he had not killed him, but said he might have done so later on. Carr had treated him so badly. He was entitled to the money. He was a relative of Carr's. I saw at once that this was the cousin and said so. Frisco did not deny it. He told me he would have to go away as he might be accused of the murder and could not afford to remain and face the matter out. But he warned me that if Stephen took the property, he would find means to get rid of Stephen. I laughed at him, but I was afraid. Frisco was almost as big a brute as his master and cousin. Then, seized with a sudden panic, he ran out of the house and into the pine wood. I left also and got down to the car arms, where afterwards Stephen came for me. I told him that I had been there all the time, but that he must have missed me. That is the truth as regards the events of that night. 
I found Carr dead, and in anger I fired those three shots. Who killed the man, I do not know. I am inclined to believe it was Frisco, in spite of his protestations of innocence. But you know how he ran away. He went to London, and from London he wrote to me. I enclose his letter. The next few days, and the murder was known, I said nothing. I replaced the revolver in its case. I persuaded Stephen that I had not been to the Pines on that night, and he believed me. Then he became possessed of the property on certain conditions. I breathed freely. Carr had not had the time to make a new will, and my boy was safe. So far, so good. Then came the bolt from the blue. I received the enclosed letter from Frisco, in which he threatened to write to the police and denounce me. If he does this, I am lost. It will be difficult for me to defend myself. The evidence against me, if the matter is looked into, will be too strong. But you can see that for yourself, Herrick, so I need not be more explicit. Under these circumstances, and to save Stephen, I have made up my mind to die. If the truth about my visit came to light, even although I were proved guiltless of the murder, Stephen is quite foolish enough to give up the money. He is a good boy, but weak, quixotic. The only way I can save him and myself, also for that matter, is to die. I'm not afraid. I've had such a wretched life that I do not think things will be worse in the next world. Besides, the chloral, against the abuse of which you are always warning me, affords me a chance of slipping quietly and painlessly out of a world that is much too hard for me. If I die, Stephen will be safe, for Frisco can do nothing. His threats will fall harmless on the dead. The man is dangerous, though. He might try to murder Stephen. I gave you a hint of that, Herrick, but I know you are clever, and so long as you are with my boy, I do not fear for him in that way. Yet, as regards the rest, it is possible that Frisco may denounce Stephen as guilty of murder. Stephen told me he went to the Pines that night to see if I had gone up there. Someone may have seen him. Then I used his revolver. That would also be evidence against him, and even if I had destroyed the weapon, that would still be evidence against him. While I live, I dare not tell the whole truth. Therefore, I make this confession, and I shall give it to Petronella. She will deliver it to you when danger threatens Stephen. From the contents of this, you will know how to act. So as to thwart Frisco. Stephen is innocent, and I verily believe that Frisco is guilty in spite of his denial. I can die in peace now, for I know when this confession is in your hands that Stephen will be safe. I trust to your head and to your heart, Herrick. I am sure you will not fail me. No doubt you think I am going to extremes in dying. That may be, but I am sick of this life. Even if I lived, I should have nothing but trouble. Besides, my poor Stephen has had quite enough of me. I hope he will marry Ida and be happy. Were I to live and remain with them, I should spoil their happiness. What would a sour old woman do with two such lovers? Well, Herrick, I am about to seal this up 
and then I shall take a dose of chloral, an overdose. Thus my death will appear to be an accident. The world will think so. I wonder if you will. You also may be deceived. But I think you will be clever enough to doubt the accident. For you know I am not the woman to be careless. Do not show this to Stephen unless you are absolutely compelled. I love the boy, and I want him to think the best of the woman who is gone. So, no more. Good-bye to you, my dear Herrick. You have been a good friend to me. Continue to be so to my boy. Also, if you have any religion, which I doubt, pray for the soul of Bianca Marsh. And here I sign my name for the last time, Bianca Marsh. When Herrick finished this extraordinary document, he laid it down with a sigh for the memory of the wrong-headed, impulsive woman who had written it. She had acted foolishly, but for the best, and since the poor soul had gone to her account, Herrick could not find it in his heart to blame her. After a pause, he took up the typewritten letter. It was typed in purple ink, without date or address, and even the signature of Frisco was in print. It ran as follows. If you do not make your son do justice to me and to my son, I will write and tell the police that you murdered Colonel Carr. I must have half the money left by Carr allowed to me by arrangement. You can answer my letter by an advertisement in the Daily Telegraph. Then I will write to you and make arrangements. All I want to know now is whether you insist upon your son giving the money, or face the disgrace of being arrested for the murder. I have a witness who can prove your presence in the house. If necessary, I will come forward and give myself up. I can save myself and condemn you. Choose. I shall look every morning in the paper. Frisco. Herrick read this precious letter over twice. He wondered that it was typed instead of written. Not that he did not see the reason for this, but that he wondered how a hunted fugitive like Frisco could procure a machine. Then the truth flashed into his mind. Robin, said Herrick, rolling up the papers. Frisco met him, went to his chambers, and disclosed the fact that he was his father. Ha! Between the two of them, they wrote this letter so as to frighten Mrs. Marsh into giving them the money through her influence over Stephen. Robin typed the letter and sent it. Little scamp. He did not tell me that. Hmm. I shall go again to town and see him. Then Frisco must be produced from his hiding place. Robin can and shall do that. This is all very well, but still the mystery of Carr's death was unsolved. Mrs. Marsh was innocent. She declared Frisco to be guilty. On the face of it, he was. But Herrick had his doubts. The case was getting more difficult at every fresh discovery. For the first time, he mistrusted his own powers of dealing with the matter. I must consult Stephen and Bess, said Dr. Jim, and left the house. In his pocket was the confession of the late Mrs. Marsh. End of chapter 22